of News Network for Sunday, June the 7th, 2020. We are in the second week of revolt in the USA, and I want to talk to you guys about that a little bit tonight. Uh, we've also got Cardit Krishnire coming on at 7.30 to talk about a couple of articles that are that can be found on the Florida Squeeze. I'll throw those links up in the show notes. We've also got Rick Spizak reporting from the road in an interview or a chat, rather, with um, frequent guest Dennis Campbell of the UK. They're going to talk about uh, Trump and COVID and things of that nature. And finally, we have Janine Moloff at 8.30 to talk about um, qualified immunity which is what puts police above the law. So we're going to get right into it tonight. Uh, There's a lot to talk about, and most of it has to do with the revolt that we're seeing. We, uh, you know, you can call it a revolt, you can call it a rebellion, um, but it can't be dismissed at this point. And we're starting to see some action now uh, as a response to the revolt, which I think is quite interesting. Right before we went on air, I caught this article uh, that the Minneapolis City Council, uh, in a veto-proof majority, Minneapolis City Council members are announcing their commitment to disbanding the city's embattled police department. Just disbanding them, y'all. Okay, so so you know we're 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 talking about um, defunding the police. We're talking about disarming the police uh, of their military grade hardware. Um, we need to stop their uh, training with um, Israel. We're going to talk about that in a second. Um, but now Minneapolis is like we just got to start over. So they are going to disband the police and replace it with something else. And so this article is in the appeal, the Minneapolis appeal. So it's at uh, theappeal.org. And it says right here that the city council's decision follows on those of several other high profile partners, including Minneapolis Public Schools, the University of Minnesota and Minneapolis Parks and Recreation to sever longstanding ties with the Minneapolis Police Department. The announcement today also arrives after several members of the council have expressed complete loss of confidence in the Minneapolis Police Department. Um, I would like to see this. I would like to see this carried out all over the place. We need to rethink what happens in police departments. We need to think about what public safety means because clearly uh, police forces have no interest in protecting and serving. They have no interest in um, taking care of the public. What they've shown in the last two weeks, what they've shown that they're about is essentially counterinsurgency. It's uh, they're, they're using military tactics that they've uh, picked up from uh, their training in the occupied uh, territories in, in Israel um, and so 
what they've learned over there and what they bring back over to the United States is not how to protect and serve, but it's how to put down the populace. And that's what you see over and over again. And, and, and uh, you know, I don't have to tell you guys, I know you know, but uh, all of this nonsense of police kneeling with protesters or showing some sort of you know, camaraderie or solidarity, do not fall for that. Do not allow that to take over the uh, uh, narrative because that is absolute and complete hogwash. As a matter of fact, there's uh, lots of video that's been produced of or captured uh, of police officers, uh, these the militarized uh, security forces making some sort of show of solidarity, whether it's kneeling or, you know, drawing protesters closer to them, only to turn their weapons on them, all right? You know, so, I mean, um, as if we don't have enough reason to distrust and want to disband the police, you know, they're showing us over and over again on videotape uh, video how uh, how aggressive they are and how much they don't care about what the public perception of them is. I mean, this is how we've seen over the last two weeks the degree of, a degree of violence which is just absolutely gobsmacking. You know, I know that cable news, and if you're if you're a um, connoisseur of cable news then your opinion of what's been going on in the streets across the United States, your opinion of that might be of nothing but looting, because that's all that the uh, mainstream media has been showing. But that's actually not what's going on on the ground. People are not coming out en masse to loot. <clears throat> the people who are looting are... Uh, um, a very small contingent, and they're the um, the uh, people who are most at risk amongst us. You know, they're they're the folks who, you know, if it weren't for uh, running through a broken window to grab some merchandise, they don't have the money to get it. You know, and that right there is a structural problem that needs to be addressed. You know, this particular. Uh, bit of unrest, rebellion, and revolt comes after two months of people being locked down in their houses, many of us not being able to work, and those of us who uh, must go to work, who are quote-unquote essential workers, uh, have been doing so without any kind of protection, largely. You know, there's uh, plenty of healthcare workers are uh, it, it's absolutely gobsmacking how police are showing up to these protests, you know, just tricked out with every kind of tactical gear that you can imagine. <clears throat> Again, as if they're um, conducting some sort of military opera operation or occupying uh, the cities that they're supposed to protect and serve, while our healthcare workers can't have access to sterile gowns, can't have access to masks or any of the necessities that they need to perform their job. Now, likewise, 
are essential workers, quote unquote, essential workers, people who have to go to work at the grocery store, have to go to work uh, in, in, in hospitals and in healthcare fields and so on and so forth. These folks have been um, treated as if, honestly, they're just treated as if they're slaves because what we're telling them is you have to go out there and you have to do your minimum wage job. You know, if you're a, a like like in a grocery store or a convenience store or a gas station, you have to go out there and you have to perform your job. We're not going to give you what you need to perform your job. You know, there were workers at McDonald's who were having to use puppy pads, pee pads as um, protective gear to make masks out of by themselves. Uh, but not only that, these workers don't have health care. So if they get sick with SARS-CoV-2 -CoV then uh, or COVID-19 or coronavirus, whatever you want to call it, then they're absolutely screwed. You know, because they stand the chance of having permanent lung damage and being incredibly sick for a couple of weeks, not being able to work, not being able to support their families, and uh, not being able to see a doctor either. You know, so we're at a time, these protests come at a time when, uh, when people are feeling a lot of despair. It's not just frustration. It's not just consternation. It is absolute freaking despair. Um, the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, which is what the Minneapolis City Council members are, are disbanding their police force about, um, that just galvanized people. You know, that's when we finally said enough. And uh, uh, what you're seeing now is is uh, you know. People saying that we do not see any change from electoral solutions. You know, you've got the uh, the old hope and change uh, slogan from the Obama administration. A lot of these police departments were militarized under the Obama administration. And when legislation was put in front of uh, Congress during the Obama administration, during the uh, Ferguson uprising, uh, when legislation was put up in front of them to demilitarize the police, they said no. So uh, um, here's a story from Vanity Fair uh, from August 15 of 2014. This is six years ago. Um, Progressive House Democrat Alan Grayson uh, offered an amendment to the Defense Appropriations Bill that would block the transfer transfer of aircraft, including unmanned aerial vehicles, drones, armored vehicles, grenade launchers, silencers, toxicological agents, launch vehicles, guided missiles, and ballistic missiles from the Department of Defense to state and local police forces. All right. We saw all of the crazy violence, all of the, the insane response to the protesters in Ferguson six years ago. And rational, sane people said, we can't have that. And so Alan Grayson, as a rational, sane person, 
responding to that violence said, you know, let's let's amend this defense this defense budget uh, to to make it so that this military stuff can't be uh, handed over to our state and local police forces. And it made absolute sense. But guess what happened to that? The amendment attracted the support of only 62 members of the House. Um, only 43 of the 62 were Democrats. Uh, there was no single member, no senior member of the Democratic Party leadership, including Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, or uh, uh, James Clyburn of, of South Carolina. Nobody, nobody signed on to this, to, to this amendment. Now, Obama had to backtrack later and uh, scale back this military transfer himself, but Congress had the opportunity to act on it uh, then, and they chose not to. And there's, there's something really interesting in this article. This is by Zed Jelani, who is, uh, you know, he, he's one of those, it's like half and half, like if you follow him on Twitter, uh, 50% of what he says, you're kind of like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. And the other 50%, you're like, oh, no, let's not do that. Um, uh, that's just, that's just life. You know, you're not going to agree with everybody all the time. And I've got a big list of people who are these 50-50 people. There are very few people that I agree with um, 100% all the time. And I think I live with most of them, um, not being my husband, basically. Uh, but the interesting thing in this article is that um, it looks at how we got here, you know, how we got to 2014, how we got to the violence in the streets that we saw in Ferguson. And Jelani says that um, Congress has been a willing participant in the arming of the police for years now. And the man most responsible for this trend graduated from Congress to the executive branch. And that's Vice President Joe Biden who was the author of the 1994 crime bill, which vastly increased numbers of police on the streets, eliminated Pell Grant access for prisoners, expanded the death penalty, and strongly increased border patrol presence. And now you've seen the border patrol unleashed on protesters this time around, and you've seen how the border patrol has been uh, uh, utilized to clamp down on uh, on uh, undocumented folks in the United States. So none of that in the 1994 crime bill has, has benefited uh, what's going on right now. There is nothing in there that has protected or served the people in the streets, didn't protect and serve George Floyd. It didn't protect and serve Freddie Gray. Uh, you know, what it did was create, a, was to militarize these, these, uh, you know, police departments, law enforcement officers uh, who are public servants, it militarized them as a force that exists in opposition to citizens, to normal people, to regular people. Um, one of the things that was in the 94 crime bill is, and this is important to note, the criminalization and militarization of Americans' public safety concerns uh, increased and our program called Community Oriented Policing Services, or COPS, 
um, which grants and finances local police departments in their efforts to wage heavy-handed drug and crime war operations. Now, this COPS program, if you go to Joe Biden's website right now and you look at his criminal justice stuff, he has, and he's, he's said this many times uh, on the campaign trail, that he wants to increase funding for that program to the tune of $300 million. So even in the face of all of this that is going on right now, what you have is the highest profile Democrat in the United States saying, uh, well, really what we want to do is just throw some more money at the at these military forces that are um, causing so much trouble and killing people. And, you know, It's important to recognize that, and it's important to bring it up right now, because we have the opportunity uh, with Joe Biden running for president to change his approach on that. If he wants our vote, he needs to change his approach on that. Because I'll tell you what, right now, you've got a lot of people out in the streets who have turned their back on electoral change, on the potential to change things through the electoral electoral system. You know, you've got, uh, I've seen quote after quote uh, having to do with these protests where people are saying, you know why I'm out here is because I've been voting and voting and voting and voting and nothing ever changes. So it's time to do something different. Now, these people who want to do something different, they are going to need to be uh, encouraged to vote for Joe Biden, and the best way to be encouraged to vote for Joe Biden is to see some policy changes from him, all right? Uh, Right now, instead of seeing uh, a movement towards any kind of policy change, what we have are the Democrats going out and, you know, saying that this is all about Trump, that we wouldn't be having any of these problems if it it weren't for Trump. Uh, The Democrats, the Uh, DNC tweeted out today, uh, quote, we need to establish a comprehensive review of police hiring, training, and de-escalation practices. So they want to form a committee, to form a committee that have a task force to study the problem and blah, blah, blah. Listen, we are so far beyond that right now. And uh, while people at the top you know, want to craft this narrative that it's all Trump and Trump is bad and blah, 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 blah. People in the streets are not beholden to that. That is not, that is not where they're coming from. That is uh, people who stand to benefit are trying to bend the narrative in that direction. Do not fall for it. Okay. Um, Also, don't fall for this performative crap coming from the Democrats, like Muriel Bowser renaming Pennsylvania Avenue and painting Black Lives Matter really big on the street in yellow um, traffic paint. The people of color are are unhoused all over Washington, D.C. People don't have access to health care. People need jobs. People don't have – we could really use a – um, uh, UBI right now, or just even unemployment uh, during during this this COVID crisis, but we don't see that. All right, uh, that is something that I think uh, 
instead of painting Black Lives Matter in the street, in the same streets where people are getting uh, hit by so-called rubber bullets and non-lethal uh, weaponry, uh, instead of beating people up and, and uh, performing counterinsurgency on American citizens, you know, maybe we should actually do something about the problems that people are protesting about. I don't know. It's a, you know, it's a thought. It's just a thought. Um, I saw earlier this week that Nancy Pelosi is a, is supposedly a badass because she had a, 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 a rhinestone, she had a rhinestone scarf that she uses as a, uh, as a face mask that said vote on it, like in rhinestones. And, uh, and so the tweet that went with it was, oh, Nancy Pelosi is such a badass. You know, I would love to see some badass legislation come out of the House. And by badass legislation, I mean, we need to see a bill that addresses police violence. We need to see, a, we need to see UBI. We need to see health care. We need to see unemployment overhauls. That would be badass. That's what we got to do. You know, I don't know if you've uh, seen this uh, Buffalo protester, 75 years old, 75 year old, uh, a peace protester, guy who's been around Buffalo forever, uh, Martin Gugini, Gugino, Martin Gugino. Uh, there's a piece of there's a piece of video of. Him, it looks like he's going up to say something to a couple of police officers coming in his direction. Uh, it doesn't look like he's doing anything but perhaps asking a question. And they push him down and he hits his head and now he's critically injured. And then the Democratic mayor of Buffalo called him an agitator. This is the Democratic mayor. So don't, don't, don't make this into a Trump is bad and the, and the Democrats are going to fix this kind of thing because it's the Democrats that are uh, that are largely responsible for a lot of this. Um, and this this 75 year old man was knocked to the ground by police in Buffalo. He's a longtime peace activist, volunteer, a Catholic worker. I come out of that Catholic worker. Uh, uh, culture as a as a kid. Uh, these these are people who are completely dedicated to to serving peace and justice. Um, they're the best among us. And uh, the mayor of Buffalo, Byron Brown. Uh, come on, you can do better than this. Uh, we don't put Democrats in office to to you know to besmirch the, the goodwill, to, be, to besmirch and to smear the, uh, the uh, profile of, of peaceful protesters who are going out in good faith to try and change the system, calling them agitators. You know, that, I mean, talk about, you know, having difficulty making a, a differentiation between Republicans and Democrats. The Republicans want to call people like uh, Martin. They want to call him a terrorist. And then you've got a Democratic mayor in Buffalo who should be there protecting and serving his own constituency, calling him an agitator, which plays right into the, to, to the terrorist thing. You know, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot there, Mr. Democrat Mayor Byron Brown. Um, why do we always see the Democrats 
cynically exploiting these social justice movements and never see anything come out of it. Uh, I think one of the reasons is, you know, because I'm old enough to have lived through the Carter, uh, not Carter, well, I did live through the Carter administration, wasn't old enough to be political then. But during the Clinton administration, during the Bush administration, uh, or the Obama administration, God, it's hard to tell them apart, during Clinton and Obama, uh, we were there was effectively no opposition to the extremely bad policy that came out of either of those presidencies. Uh, we'll get into that at another time, but um, if Joe Biden wins this, we have to keep his feet to the fire. And I don't want to see anybody coming after uh, activists and saying, Oh, you know, you're, you're, you're being divisive and, you know, party unity and this and blah, blah, blah. Let me tell you what leads to party unity and just unity in general, and that is adhering to a social contract. And the social contract that we have with the Democrats as Democrats is that they are sent to Washington, they're sent to the state houses, they're sent to, to work in our um, city councils and the mayor's offices to advocate for us to empower us and to push the policy that will help us, the policies that will help us. And when that social contract is broken, that's when the base and that's when voters uh, start to stay home. Because, you know, when they say, when they say that, that voters can't differentiate between the Republicans and the Democrats, it's not so much, it's not this dumb, dumb thing that the parties want, want, want you to think that it is. It's not this dumb, dumb thing where it's like, oh, I can't tell the difference between them or, or <clears throat> there's, there's no uh, uh, significant difference. Yeah, there's a difference. You know, the, the Republicans are going to be absolute assholes about things and the, and the Democrats are not going to say the horrible stuff out loud. You know, that's the difference. What we need to see is real policy change, and that's the social contract. So adhere to the social contract, and you will have unity. But ask for unity without that social contract? Good luck. Just good luck. Good luck with that. You're not going to get it. Um, there's some really good articles I'm going to throw up into the show notes. Uh, uh, this, uh, this piece on the Minneapolis uh, the disbanding of the Minneapolis police force. There's a real quick hit that I want to give you guys here about the lethal history of rubber bullets. This is a piece that was in um, Fast Company. And you know, whatever happened to Fast Company? I can't believe I'm reading a, a Fast Company piece. Uh, haven't seen them around in a while. Rubber bullets were less lethal. Less lethal ammunition is a $1 billion industry with zero federal oversight and no industry groups providing auditing or testing of the ammunition. 15% of people who are struck with so-called rubber bullets are left with permanent disability. 3% are killed. Okay? And when we talk about rubber bullets, let me tell you, they're, they, they're actually metal. <laughs> they're actually metal in them. And when they and when they shoot sandbags or the um sorry, the bean bags at you, those are those are little bags that are filled with uh, lead pellets. 
all right? This stuff is maiming people. You've seen over and over again where protesters are hit in the face, hit in the, the people putting their eyes out. And let me tell you, when those uh, guns are used to shoot at people, it's not like you're just putting something out at arm's length and just going willy-nilly and shooting and, oops, I hit someone in the face. They have laser targets on them. So they're painting people with these laser targets base and then shooting them. It is on purpose. And let me tell you something else, because this is something that I saw uh, on, on Twitter. And this is the last thing I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you um, before we go to Cardiff. Um, another really good lefty who's, who's online, and I won't mention any names, uh, but the, uh, there was a, a post or a series of posts that said, hey, women, if you're going out to protest, here are some uh, suggested outfits to wear. And so what followed was some photography of like short skirts and heels and, and, you know, real girly attire. And so the idea was go to these protests in these like, you know, feminine attire to, to be that white woman shield in front of everybody else. And um, uh, I get where this person is coming from. Totally get it. I understand it, but I've lived a few decades, too many decades longer than this person. And I know, what happens in these situations is that the police look for women to hurt and to maim. They actually look for you because what they're trying to do is to get a rise out of the men around you. So if a woman is hurt, the idea is that all the dudes around you are going to freak out and rush the police, and that's going to give the police another reason to go apeshit on everybody. This is a bad, bad idea. Do not... Do not dress for a job interview if you're going to a protest. And I'm sure most people are smart enough to know that at this point. Um, you need to wear as much tactical gear as you possibly can. And tactical gear in this day and age means a mask. Uh, you need to wear a mask for COVID, but you also want to wear a mask to deter facial recognition. Uh, you want to wear... You want to wear jeans, you want to wear boots, you want to wear all the stuff. Do not go in flip-flops, Floridians. Uh, if, if, you are, if you find yourself in a bad situation, you want to be able to run, all right? Um, just be smart. Just be smart out there because the police don't give a hot goddamn about whether you're a pretty girl or whether you're, you know, um, you know privileged or, or, or not. They are just going willy-nilly. Uh, here in Florida, we've got uh, kind of a, a mixed bag. Uh, it seems like uh, Orlando Police Department, OPD, it seems like they're being somewhat reasonable and somewhat rational. I think that has something to do with uh, um, a Congressman, or member of Congress, uh, uh, Val Demings, uh, and who is being considered for uh, vice president uh, with Joe Biden, uh, and also her husband, uh, Jerry Demings, is the mayor of Orange County. And so both of these folks come from, uh, you know, being chiefs of police and heads of police departments in Central Florida, and have uh, gone for the 
promotion to these political posts. And so they don't want the police to act like a bunch of animals out there, a bunch of animals with, with guns. Uh, so I think that that's part of the reason why or Orlando is behaving a little bit better. Not necessarily great. Uh, we've seen really bad behavior from uh, South Florida in Fort Lauderdale and in Miami. Uh, there's no excuse for the way that the police have been acting uh, further down south. Uh, still, for once, Florida has not made national headlines in terms of um, some kind of awful confrontations that need to be aired out in um, uh, confrontations that, that need to be aired out uh, in national media. I'm hearing that Cardic is having trouble um, with the dial-in on the computer. So, Cardic, if you're listening, just use your phone to call in, uh, and we will wait for you. Use your phone. Um, here at Pro Progressive News Network, we use the Blog Talk Radio back end. Back end allows you to direct connect, so I can send a a link to your email. And once you use the link to your email, then that allows you to use a microphone on your laptop or computer. You can also always call in. And um, there we go. There's Cardic. Um, and so I think I confused our guest. Uh, real quick, one thing I didn't mention, I think this is really funny for a while today, um, Hillary uh, STFU, which is shut the fuck up. Uh, Hillary shut the fuck up was trending today on Twitter, uh, which I thought was um, was uh, kind of funny because why was Hillary Clinton even talking? You know. All right, here's Cardick. Hey there, sorry you had trouble connecting, but I'm really glad you're here with us now. Appreciate it. Yeah. Uh... Flight problems connecting. We always have technology issues on on shows, on live shows. So that um, just comes to, that uh, just comes with the territory, unfortunately, Brooke. So that's right. To be expected. You know, one of the things recently that that happened, I was in the middle of the show and getting ready to play uh, an interview that I dearly love with uh, Jerry Brown on um, psychedelics, and my laptop died. Just died. And so I restarted the show from an iPad and called in on my cell phone. So for ever since that happened, I keep all of these devices ready to go should one of them decide to croak. Because <laughs> who knows? Right. So I apologize to the audience because I did not keep my cell phone handy, and I kept trying to log in via uh, the Block Talk Radio site on uh, my uh, laptop, and when it didn't work, I went to another laptop and did it, rather than calling in. I just called in five minutes ago, so apologies. <laughs> no problem. Well, you know what? Your articles this week um, are are freaking fantastic, and I thought we might start with the um, COVID one. I love this uh, five reasons Florida leaders appear determined to sacrifice public health for political purposes. This is really this is really kind of what I was alluding to. And talking about the protests is that, you know, we've been locked down 
and some people have been uh, out of work and unable to uh, get in touch with with unemployment, especially unemployment benefits, especially here in Florida. Uh, so, you know, these economic pressures and health pressures with regard to, you know, getting sick and not being able to see a doctor, all of this has kind of come to bear and it's kind of become a, a feature or a, um, a, a characteristic of the revolt. And so I thought it was really timely that, uh, that you did this piece. So uh, give us a sense of what you got in here. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it follows up on another piece I know we're going to talk about in a little bit about kind of the Floridization. Floridization, I still have not gotten the word down um, because I've invented the word for all, <laughs> all practical purposes of American politics under Donald Trump. But I think what we are seeing is this effort by people on the right here in Florida. I can't speak nationally, but I think it's probably happening all over the country based on observation, what we see on social media, what we see um, on media outlets like Fox News and Newsmax Magazine, Town Hall, uh, com, et cetera, this effort to short-circuit the coronavirus lockdown, an effort to create a cognitive dissonance about public safety, including wearing masks, uh, using uh, social distancing, using hand sanitizer, those sorts of things, uh, in order to further a political or economic agenda. So essentially what we have happening here in Florida currently, and I will admit I have gone and I have protested, uh, but in the process of going and protesting at the Black Lives Matter uh, protest, following the killing of George Floyd, I was kind of tentative because I was trying to keep a little more distance than everybody else. Now, to, to, to the credit of the protesters, I did not see a single protester at either of the protests I attended that were not wearing masks, which um, is not what you necessarily see when you interact with people in this state uh, in more casual situations, because the right has pushed a narrative that somehow wearing a mask is an infringement upon your freedom. Now, this is part of this anti-intellectualism that, that the right, particularly the last few years, has raced away with. Um, and a cognitive dissonance and a distrust of authority, a distrust of science, and a distrust of, of, quite frankly, public officials. And we saw it again on full display this week. So what has happened, Brooke, in the last week is we have seen numbers begin to rise quite rapidly in Florida. So anytime I point this out, numbers of uh, positive tests for coronavirus. Uh, mm -hmm. The pushback from conservatives is we're doing more testing. Um, the death rates are down, or um, basically there's a spike because of the protests. Well, in reality, there's a spike right now. There might be a spike because of the protests in a few days. Once uh, mm -hmm. the first tests, et cetera, come back from that, from that period. There is a spike right now because of the absolute recklessness of many Floridians during the Memorial Day holiday weekend. A holiday, I will, I will readily admit, I did not leave my house because I was petrified by what I saw on social media and on cable news uh, of people behaving badly in Florida and putting their, their own individual liberty, their own live and let live philosophy above 
general public health and that of their neighbors and the people who they interact with on a regular basis. So once again, we're back at this point where we're talking about the, the conservatives, the right, pushing a philosophy of individualism and, quote, liberty, unquote, whatever that really means, at, uh, at, at the kind of um, ahead of everything else. So nothing else matters if it infringes on your, quote, personal liberty and your personal freedoms. That includes public health. That includes people uh, dying. So that's, that's really kind of the premise of the article. So I went through five, uh, five reasons, five issues here in the state of Florida, and a lot of the politics you see nationally from the, the, the post-Bush Republican Party, for lack of a better term, the Trump-era Republican Party, are um, things we've known about in Florida for some time because Florida was the guinea pig. This, uh, this movement very much started in Florida and has been exported nationally. Oh, well, yeah, and, you know, you're talking about the personal liberties and stuff, and there's that old saying that my liberty ends where your nose begins, and that is absolutely uh, uh, pertinent to issues having to do with uh, uh, vectoring uh, an illness via you know, the way that via talking and talking and singing and all the things that we do that like, uh, or sneezing that, you know, pushes out the air and the, you know, virus from inside and out to other people. So it's been uh, really scary. I think uh, what's been going on at the protest, but most of the people I, I've seen have been wearing masks, which is amazing. Um, but I think, and I, I, I'm looking at this graph on your article right now. I think there's no way that the spike we're having now has anything to do with protests. And you're absolutely right that that has to do with Memorial Day. Uh, Florida rushed to open everything up because our economy depends on, we're in this lopsided economy that depends almost entirely on these low-wage jobs that have to do with uh, tourism. You know, so they wanted to get all these people back out and have a good Memorial Day, and uh, and everything's fine. And it just seems to me like we're we decided to sacrifice people, to sacrifice low-wage workers, to to mammon, to it, it, because who cares? You know, we've we've we it's either that or everyone goes broke. Yeah, and and so the lack of diversification of Florida's economy is the root cause of this. Um, and I, I know people think that I, I, I obsess too much about the history of this state when I talk about the decline in the last 20 years, and particularly in the last 10 years, that accelerated since Rick Scott became governor uh, and Marco Rubio got elected to the U.S. Senate. But we've gone from being a state that had, and you and I actually did a podcast on this several weeks ago on the Space Coast and on Brevard County. We've gotten away from having a vibrant aerospace industry, a vibrant technology industry. Uh, scientific research in this state. We had, in the 1970s and 1980s, I'm not exaggerating when I say Florida was at the apex of a lot of this stuff. We very easily could have been, a, had a tech hub like a Silicon Valley, like an Austin, like a, uh, um, a Raleigh-Durham Triangle area, Chapel Hill Triangle area in Florida. But we blew it because of the, the leaders we elected, uh, the, the, the type of uh, uh, ideology 
policy they had. Um, Jeb Bush was able to uh, attract the Scripps Research Center uh, to move from California, uh, but that didn't, that didn't work out as well as we hoped. But that was kind of the last gap. Because in the 1970s and 1980s, Florida was the envy of the Sun Belt. Our economy was diverse. We were getting beyond um, tourism, although I, I will have to say that at the time we had a really strong citrus industry, which it's not necessarily the fault of um, the leaders in power now, but that, that, that you know, different climactic and, and, and things happened that affected that. But, of course, they're not, they're not seen to discuss climate change anyway, which is one of the things that has led to a downturn in agriculture, downturn in the citrus industry. So now you have a state that is entirely reliant on two things, tourism and uh, development, building. Those two things um, cannot uh, continue in a lockdown. So, so basically, I have said this very early on when I actually kind of defended the governor when he didn't lock down as quickly as, as he probably should have, because I said, look, I think he understands that Florida won't bounce back as quickly as, um, as California, as New York, as any other place where there is a significant critical mass of people who are in, uh, in different industries, where there is a strong technology sector, where there are uh, uh, young professionals who gravitate to places because of cultural options and educational options. Florida lacks all of that, okay? With the possible exception uh, of Miami, I know everybody when I make these cop- comments comes back at me, well, what about Miami? It's a great international city. It's a great media hub. Okay. But we take Miami out of the equation. I, I will concede Miami. Miami is very different than the rest of the state. And I think you and I both know that. So, yeah, when you talk about the rest of the state, you have all of these considerations. But DeSantis has been back and forth. So, DeSantis was more alarmed about coronavirus than most Republicans in early March. He makes some very strong statements, but never actually, and he closes schools in Florida before. We, our schools were closed statewide before most states. Uh, in fact, we were one of, I think, the first five or ten states to, to shut down our school system. So he made these proactive moves. But then he started to stall, started to make it sound like it was a South Florida problem because you had a lot of international travelers coming through Miami, through Fort Lauderdale, which makes sense. Um, and then he's been zigzagging all over the place since. So he took it very seriously at times. At other times, he was being pressured not by this group of anti-intellectual Republicans, anti-science Republicans, liberty, freedom people, uh, the sort of people we used to see in the Freedom Caucus in, in the U.S. House, um, to, to, to change tax. So DeSantis has kind of been all over the place. And I think what he wanted to do initially was do a very data-driven, based on his public statements, data-driven reopening uh, plan. What ends up happening is the data, if, if data is driving it, Florida is not moving to phase two uh, as quickly as it is. In fact, Florida, based on the spike in the last week, maybe you're not even in phase one in most places. Um, but what has happened is there's been so much pressure from the Speaker of the House, from other Republican officials at the state, who have um, what I would call, and this goes back to the article I wrote previously, a gangster mentality in office. They, they are essentially... They behave like street thugs who have been who, who you put in suits. They're essentially hoodlums. The way they behave, the way they bully, the way they berate people, the way the um, emphasis on anti-intellectualism, the emphasis on beating up and roughing up your opposition. 
which is obviously always been a facet of politics wherever you are globally, but it's been accelerated in Florida by this group. So when you see Donald Trump tweeting, attacking uh, people personally, saying, uh, oh, you know, uh, uh, this guy, Jim Mattis, is a four, even though he's a four-star general, oh, he knows nothing about the military, he's getting 200 likes and he's attacking uh, fake news, CNN, and he's attacking people personally. That politics really began in Florida. Donald Trump is, for all, purposes, uh, for all intents and purposes, politically a Floridian. Now, of course, business-wise, he's from New York. But politically, his inspirations were people, the people who he hosted in Mar-a-Lago, people like Rick Scott and Pam Bondi and Matt Gates and others. So um, the way he conducts himself publicly is the way many elected officials in Florida, Republican elected officials, behave. Now, DeSantis is not actually one of them, but DeSantis is in this position of constantly wanting to placate Trump personally and the Trump wing. So he goes along, uh, even though his, his public rhetoric, as I said, at times during coronavirus, is very different than Trump. But then, you know, a day or two later, he'd fall in line after there were other Republicans in the state that would raise objections. So that is why we are where we are right now, which is a state that is reopening a state that's accelerating its reopening, a state that now is invade, uh, inviting two major sports leagues, uh, Major League Soccer and the NBA, to come and play their, their, their seasons in the state of Florida um, at Disney, when, uh, in fact, uh, the, uh, the, the, the virus is not under control in this state. It has never been under control. This, there's been talk about, well, um, maybe there'll be a second wave. So both MLS and the NBA have scheduled their Orlando experiment to end by the end of August. That way they're out of Florida by the time the quote, second wave hits Florida in September. But I would argue the first wave never ended. And that's where we're at. Yeah. Um, well, and, you know, you mentioned the ele- electoral potential uh, and and how the uh, electoral calculations have been feeding into this. Can you kind of unpack that a little bit? Yeah, so um, they need to get the economy back up and running, the uh, the Republicans, in order for Donald Trump to win Florida's electoral votes. Now, I thought he was pretty safe in the state, I'll admit, before coronavirus. There were a lot of people, I mean, I had a very public argument on Twitter with uh, Congresswoman Glenn Graham about Joe Biden's chances in Florida. Where I said, yeah, Biden probably has a better chance of winning than, let's like, say, Michael Bloomberg would, but that still means he'll lose by three, three to five points. Bloomberg, I think, would have lost Florida by, by a bigger margin, similar to the, uh, the margin Murphy lost to Rubio by uh, in 2016 in the Senate race. I think that's how that Bloomberg would have run against, um, against Trump. But now that the economy has had this severe downturn. And I think it's important for the listeners to realize that the unemployment rate in the United States is much higher than in other Western nations, similar Western democracies. Everybody has been impacted by coronavirus. Everybody has locked down. But the U.S. has had more, a higher percentage of job losses because of the way the U.S. economy is, is constructed, the way Florida's economy is constructed based on two industries uh, and built on eggshells, really, and the fact that we don't have uh, strong fallback positions of unemployment insurance. We do not have any of the uh, the sort of uh, safety net and social uh, social spending per capita but on a per capita basis that, that most countries in Western Europe have, or all countries in Western Europe have. So that, that is 
created this situation where Trump is in trouble in Florida suddenly. Biden has a chance to win Florida. I, I don't I, I wouldn't put it higher than 50-50, but it's probably about 50-50 now, which is much better. I, I mean, like I said, I didn't think Biden would get closer than three to five points with all, everything going right earlier in the year. So there's this, been this, this kind of desperation to, to reopen the economy, get things up and running again, thank Florida's electoral votes, and, um, and, and keep Trump in the White House. Uh, the problem is, I think you're having – what happened this week has, has, an, has an impact in Florida because not only, obviously, Black Lives Matter protests, et cetera, but we, we've known for some time – the, the generals, people like Madison Kelly, who actually served in Trump's administration, probably in, in casting a secret ballot wouldn't vote for him again. If they voted for him in the first place, they may not. Um, but now that there's this whole issue of generals being very open in opposition to, to Trump, and, and I, I, I'm an Atlantic subscriber, I've read Madison's uh, op-ed, it's fantastic, but I mean, he didn't leave any wiggle room there. He's basically saying this guy is a threat to the Constitution, he has to go. The question is, Florida has more retired military and more, and you know, quite frankly, a lot of enlisted men here too, currently enlisted men. Does that impact um, the state to where that begins to, to even push the state further away from Trump? Or is there, uh, are there enlisted men who will say, well, we don't care what the generals say, right? <laughs> we don't care. Uh, they're elite. They're part of the deep state anyway, right, in their, in their world. But I think a lot of this has to do with electoral politics. It's the point that the, the feeling was that you have to get the economy back up and running this summer, even though the big season for Florida is the fall and the winter. October to March was really our busy season because psychological, the psychological impact of being shut down during the summer will probably cost Trump Florida's electoral votes. And if he doesn't win Florida, he's not going to get reelected. Interesting. Uh, do you just kind of on the same subject, do you see any uh, other Democrats who are running uh, like for Congress or any other races that could benefit or ride any coattails? Should Biden uh, do better than should should Biden overperform? Yeah, I think the Democrats are, are interested in, in the, um, the dis- uh, two districts, the district in, in suburban Tampa. Where, uh, where they have Adam Hattersley running against uh, Ross Spano, who was elected last year under very uh, suspicious circumstances and a lot of fraud involved uh, allegedly in that race. Even uh, a lot of Republicans have, have said, hey, Spano, maybe, maybe the Democrats should succeed him. This is another interesting thing that Pelosi, and I know you've talked about this before, Brooke, oftentimes she doesn't want to pick fights. And there is now twice in Florida where we have had um, – Republicans essentially steal seats or commit fraud. Uh, in 2006, with the uh, uh, what was then the 13th district and Christine Jennings and, and, and uh, Vern Buchanan's victory over her, mm-hmm. um, and uh, Pelosi went ahead and sat Buchanan, even though a lot of us, including myself from here in Florida, said, "Hey, we saw the fraud," and um, and there were 13,000 votes missing, and Christine Jennings lost by I, I want to say she lost by a couple hundred votes. And then the Spano mm-hmm. race, well, once again, the Democrats, just like in 2006, uh, had gotten back in, in, into the majority in 2018, and Pelosi didn't want to pick the fight and she sat there. Um, so that is one seat where uh, Biden doing well could really help the Democrats. The other seat is the old 
Burns the Cannon Siege, uh, which has been renumbered, I think it's the 15th or 16th now, was the 13th back in those days, where the Democrats have um, in, uh, in, in Margaret Good a, a fairly strong candidate. I, but again, I think uh, things could change, right? Maybe Florida's economy recovers because of this reopening, and uh, Biden does not run as strong in these areas. Also, there's the potential that Biden will just, like Democrats typically do, try and run up the score in, uh, in, in poor urban areas. And what that would do would probably protect uh, Debbie Powell, uh, Congresswoman Powell, who is in a really tough reelection fight against uh, Miami-Dade Mayor uh, Carlos Jimenez. That might, it might sure that heat up. Uh, if he runs stronger, but uh, but the Republicans are, are, are kind of scared because I think they also um, get the sense that we are in a position now where you're looking at a an election which you cannot kind of script or predict. And what we have seen is that they're much better at using data and stimulating turnout in this state than the Democrats are. Okay, they, mm-hmm. they interpret data better. They know where their voters are. They know how they're, if they turn out certain voters in certain locations, how they're going to vote. And that's why it's not an accident they keep winning every election in the state by razor thin margins, but they win them all, almost all of them. Um, so there is a little bit of nervousness now among Republicans. And um, there's also, as I said, this cognitive dissonance going on with masks, wearing a mask. They're trying to make that a big cause not to wear masks, et cetera. This could blow up in their faces. So uh, that's essentially the playing field. It's very different covid now the Black Lives Matter protests, uh, let's see if that has staying power, but COVID has really changed this, uh, the way this election is shaping up in Florida. Yeah, we've, we have so much bearing down on us right now that came out of nowhere seemingly and is uh, going to leave marks on our political landscape for quite some time. So, um, uh Hardik, let me. Uh, where can people find you on social media? What's the best way to so keep on, up with Hardik these days? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, KKFLA737. I deleted my Facebook account this week, so don't look for me there. I'm sure everybody listening knows why I would delete my Facebook account, why all of you should delete your Facebook account. Um, as Mark Zuckerberg right. continues to, uh, to be a champion for, for right wing propaganda and for, for Trump and the fascist movement's talking points. So I'm not on Facebook anymore. I'm only on Twitter, KKFLA737. And then, of course, uh, at the website, thefloridasqueeze.com. Well, good for you for getting rid of that Facebook account. I need to do the same. Uh, I may, who knows? Maybe this week. The, the Zuckerberg stuff is just absolutely atrocious. Cardick, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I look forward to talking to you real soon on your podcast, on the History Podcast. And I want everybody to make sure that they go to thefloridasqueeze.com to check out Cardiff's stuff. And I will throw those links into the show notes. Um, But uh, thank you so much for coming on. I always love talking to you. Great. Thank you, Brooke. All right. Okay, guys, we've got Dennis Campbell. Uh, our longtime commentator from across the pond. He's a UK resident. Um, sat down for a little chat on the phone with Rick Spizak and 
I'm going to go ahead and play that for you. Here it goes. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome Mr. Dennis Campbell, international journalist and author. Dennis, how are things in the UK? What's up with UK and the uh, era of coronavirus? We've got uh, village idiots running things, as you do. And they are rushing to get things open in England. And Wales, Northern Ireland, and Scotland are saying, not so fast. Um, next week in Wales, schools will reopen. And no idea how that's going to work, you know, because, you know, three and four and five-year-olds do such a great job at social distancing, um, you know, as a general rule. But we'll see how that works. And um, the biggest problem is we still have about a 1,000 cases a day, you know, people being diagnosed with it. Um, we haven't dipped below the magic number one on the R-factor scale. And um, we haven't had 14 days of uh, declining numbers of cases. Uh, we just passed 50,000 deaths here. And, uh, you know, we're talking, this is all UK-wide now, you know, we're talking a country that's a sixth the size of yours. And uh, we've got half as many um, dead. So, no frickin' way we should be opening up, but we are. And I have a funny feeling that based on things I've read that, you know, are not from the most reputable of sources, but we're expecting a massive spike again in August. And, uh, you know, because funeral directors have been told to expect it, and uh, hospitals are preparing for it. I just don't know, you know, where this all ends. We have nothing like herd immunity. And we're recording on the day in which this morning the people in Sweden finally admitted, yeah, we screwed up. We didn't do it right. So Sweden and Norway have, uh, you know, far more elevated numbers of cases presented to us. And um, my prediction is five days from now, the massive wave from Memorial Day weekend is going to hit. And then add another 14 days on top of that. And the wave from all the uh, George Floyd um, cases are going to hit in the United States. So you, you guys have got a double barrel whammy coming, yet your president is, uh, is behaving <clears throat> as if the fact that he can't make a, uh, a speech to 50,000 people in Charlotte, North Carolina is somehow a personal affront by the Democratic governor there when, you know, he's, he's doing something that I wish more people would do is taking care of the electorate. He's taking care of the people. So what can I say? I'm sure you're as impressed as I was at the, uh, uh, the appearance of the religious Trump uh, who commandeered a church front porch to, uh, to wave a Bible, uh, something that he probably uh, has never actually touched before. Yep, yep. We're, uh, I tell you, man, it, it is just, I mean, what, what bothered me most about that incident, even beyond the tear gassing, was that they tear gassed one of the ministers of that church sitting outside on the patio to get them out of the shop. So basically, their own church 
<laughs> they can't stay there while what's his face goes and does a photo opportunity, which is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. <clears throat> of course, we do know now that that photo op that wasn't a photo op was arranged through the good offices of Ivanka and Kellyanne Conway. Uh, that that photo op that you know wasn't a photo op. Okay, sure. You know, and the cameraman that's got to get you know a new nose as a result of the police beating the shit out of him and uh, <clears throat> all the people that were you know basically pushed away. Um, it's just. Luckily, uh, we know now that uh, the police have taken this whole situation to heart. And I think we can uh, reasonably expect a completely new attitude on the police across the country with a a much more respect for every citizen. And they understand that summary executions are a thing of the past for people who are not yet even, you know, placed in custody. Yes, Senator Susan Collins. You know, he's learned his lesson. He'll never happen again. You know, horseshit. It's just—it's just complete and utter horseshit. And you know, if he—if he had the ability to really go into these cities without the um, Insurrection Act, it would be a hundred times worse than it is right now. And it ain't particularly good at this moment. So, you may have heard that uh, old W himself came out with what. Shocking to many was, in fact, a reasonable call for calm and respect for citizens. It is sad, but, you know, it's also, in some respects, um, inspiring to see the thousands upon thousands of people that showed up yesterday to protest peacefully, as all the others had been that to that point. And um, you're seeing now... It's up to 74% in the latest post-Ipsos poll that did not agree with Trump's handling of protesters. 20% said it was okay. 74% said no. 6%, I guess, were undecided. You know, and um, it's just nice to see all of these groups springing up. And did you see the Republicans for Trump advert today? Oh, I mean, it is one of the most powerful things I've seen. One minute of his words, his actions, video from police, video of uh, George Floyd, video of all the things. And it just, you know, they call it this November, end Trump's American carnage, because that was the big line from his inaugural address. And it tells me, the fact that you've got these moderate Republicans out there that are, I mean, I read something yesterday and I, I used it when I was on the, the, the line with the folks at China radio yesterday um, about George will. Now George and I couldn't be further apart politically, but I've always liked him. <clears throat> I mean, I've always liked his command of the English language. And he wrote a piece saying, no one should want four more years of this, okay? When he's talking, obviously, about Trump. His closing lines were, we cannot know all the measures necessary 
to restore the nation's domestic health and international standing, but we know the first step. Senate Republicans must be routed as condign punishment for their vitiate collaboration. And I said to the folks in China, I said, I fear that Trump has awakened a sleeping giant, Nixon's great silent majority, and they are royally pissed off. And I think that, that this is a group that, I mean, I, I was watching earlier today a whisk, it's on Facebook or Twitter. There's a Wisconsin lifelong Republican who basically spent a minute and 40 seconds to camera saying, I didn't vote for this. You know, you know, and, and he goes through the litany of things. And that's why I'll be I, a Republican, will be voting for George, uh, for, for Joe Biden in the fall. And I went, whoa, <clears throat> sane, sober, finally he's had enough. Uh, yesterday, also, there was a another group of, of, of Republicans who basically said, that's it. And they came out to protest with the protesters because they thought it was absolutely undefensible, indefensible, and absolutely abhorrent. And who knows where they're going to vote. But all Trump has to do is keep opening his mouth. And he keeps doing stupid shit. And he's, he's digging his own grave. Biden has had to do nothing. He showed up and made a speech in Philadelphia that was the most presidential-sounding thing we and her, we, we've seen and heard since Obama himself. So, you know, when your opponent is digging a hole, you hand them a cool drink and a fresh shovel so that he can just keep on digging. And I think Biden's strategy throughout this has been brilliant. And when he needs to say something, he does what he did in Philadelphia Dennis, I'm going to ask you to take off your political hat for a second and put on your international business affairs hat. And I want to ask you, since Trump has been using China as uh, one more uh, stocking horse, one more enemy to be defeated and insulted in every way possible, uh, you have to wonder uh, the consumer world that has been... Uh, enjoyed by so much of the West with cheap Chinese goods for decades, uh, how much insults will the Chinese take before that whole world of cheap Chinese goods is a thing of the past? Yeah, I think, you know, you're, you're, you're reaching a point with China where China certainly doesn't give a shit what he says. Okay, they're going to do whatever they're going to do. They always have, always will. And, you know, if they don't have the technology, they'll steal it. And they don't care about IP, intellectual property. So to him, it's just like there's this noisy mosquito buzzing around my ear. And if I swat my, if I swat my hand, it goes away for a while. And then it comes back and it buzzes a little bit more. And I swat again and disappears for a while. Trump has lost all legitimacy in the area of foreign trade. He's pinning his hopes on signing a great trade deal in another month or two. And it is one of those situations where whatever deal he signs, because Trump is so desperate to have a win before the election, it's going to be so heavily tilted towards China. And if there are any penalties in there, they're 
unenforceable. There'll be no measures, there'll be nothing. And Xi Jinping knows this. And he's got his own problems right now, restarting his you know, his economy after Wuhan. So, you know, he's at a point where he's treading very carefully internally there, but he's still going to be fine because of the power he's amassed and the people he's surrounded himself with. And today, it's going to be, you know, he's a use, Trump is a useful idiot for China just as he's a useful idiot for Russia. He's going to be able to do what he wants to do, take over Hong Kong, take over Taiwan, bring them all back in the fold, be very brutal to his people. And as long as Trump is in charge, nothing will happen. There will be no global effort because there are no global allies for the U.S. anymore. The G7 is a joke. The G20 is a joke. NATO is becoming a joke. And, you know, we do these things at our peril, which is why you need a Biden to come back in probably with, you know, a very serious high-level sex state. And don't be surprised if it becomes somebody like Barack Obama to go back out, mend fences, heal relationships quickly, get everybody back together, you know, and the boys are back in town. And it wouldn't be the first time, by the way, that a former president became sex state. You know, and then at some point in time in his uh, term, he's going to get to appoint a Supreme Court justice. And, uh, you know, first one won't go to Obama, but I bet you the, the, the last one will. Dennis, turning to the uh, international front, uh, I am imagining that uh, our friends in Europe, uh, evidently formerly our allies, uh, do not welcome these uh, new uh, trial balloons or trial zeppelins, if you will, that uh, Trump is suggesting that he may personally bring uh, Vladimir Putin into the G7. Uh, what are what reaction are you hearing from our European friends? Oh, they're pissed. You know, Merkel and Boris Johnson have both said there's no way they'd be involved in any G7 meeting that Putin was a part of. So, I mean, I don't see that invite to Putin happening while the conference is going on. And the conferences don't even produce papers anymore because Trump refuses to sign them. And these are always unanimous. And, you know, it's it's going to be a useless meeting at the most important time one can imagine. You have to begin to wonder with uh, Chinese uh, basically being insulted daily and uh, uh, trade relations uh, just bad and getting worse, it doesn't take a lot of energy to understand that there's going to be a whole different trade dynamic. And uh, essentially the marketplace where all these big box stores have been selling cheap Chinese goods puts a whole new complexion on where the economy is going to recover to. It is. It is, and prices are going to go up. Um, you know, it, this is the problem when it is a consumer-fueled economy. And in the United States and the United Kingdom, because neither of us manufacture anything really anymore, do a lot of assembling, but we don't do a lot of manufacturing, um, you know, you're in a situation where you can't start the economy until you bring a lot of these service jobs back. And you can't bring these service jobs back unless you have a significant working economy. 
I mean, I think I've had a takeaway three times in the last hundred days where someone has you know, delivered it or I walked up to the cafe. And my habits have changed so dramatically from two or three times a night dining out with friends to wondering if I'm ever going to see some of these friends again because of the nature of this virus and the, you know, I mean, I'm sitting here with, with, with four risk factors, obesity, diabetes, over 60, and I'm a person of color. I hit the jackpot, all right? Um, I'm fortunate that my immune system is not compromised, not my work, that it's doing very well. And I'm watching and reading, like today there was this amazing science article that came out from one of the science journals, uh, Three or four days ago, I read an article that said, you know, we may have this COVID-19 thing all wrong. It's really a blood vessel disease. And when you start to then look at another one I posted today, which looks at now how it attacks and affects organs in the body, it gives you a treatment regimen that then helps basically, you know, they say if it, if it gets into two areas, it's really hard for the body to fight off. If it gets into three, it's fatal. Okay, so if you've got something going on in your brain, the meningitis, in, in your lungs, and then it works into your kidneys, bye-bye now. But if they can treat various areas, so for example, today a study started in Britain using ibuprofen, I mean, and it's a, it's a modified, liquefied version of ibuprofen with a number of other things in there because they're realizing that it's an inflammatory disease and we treat inflammatory with, with this ibuprofen all the time. You know, you, you, you mess up your knee, you take ibuprofen. So it's really interesting to see how you can take all of these different things and begin to create a treatment regime. I mean, AIDS would still be killing people if someone hadn't discovered the effect of T-cells and looked at that. And from that came antiretrovirals. And so you've got somebody like Magic Johnson, 28 years now since his HIV-positive diagnosis, still alive and kicking and thriving because of this cocktail of drugs he takes. Ebola should have wiped out the planet until the, the doctors realized, wait a minute, people who get it come in close contact with. It's not airborne. It's close physical contact with. So they were able to isolate people and destroy the virus and tamp it down to a point where you don't see it anymore. And this is all learned through a combination of science and medicine. And, and I said, I wrote something the other day. I said, you know, if we can pull back from the devastation of the disease, because right now the focus is on the lungs and on the airways, you know, and, and, and that's the main focus, and it probably will be. But people caught it through their eyes. <laughs> people inhaled it, yes, which would have been the lungs and the trait. People got it through their ears. People got it through different parts of the body. And now you see it the way it ravages people from head to toe. I mean, COVID toes, bruising on the legs, 
kidneys. And, and this, this article that I saw was just absolutely brilliant because it showed that they're now at a point where they've got to take a step back from the day-to-day, hand-to-hand ICU combat that they're in. And they're starting to research and take a look at, well, if this, then that. And I think you're going to find much better ways of treating this dependent on all of the symptoms and the way in which they look at them, as opposed to, you know, this, this stupid testing regime that doesn't work anyways. You know, I mean, nobody's looking at people's skin to see if the leg bruises are coming from this. Where are they coming from? And, and I think this is all part of what's going to have to happen. So if we actually see an end to cheap Chinese goods, uh, what do you think is the same path to a new economy that is not so internationally based or certainly not so dependent on vast differences of, uh, of cost of goods manufactured in one area of the world versus another? Yeah, and, and not only is it going to have to change, we're we're going to have to bring stuff back. I mean, you, you mentioned it earlier when you started talking about cheap Chinese stuff. Um, we're going to have to create our own from food supply to, um, you know, individual uh, jobs and, and, and things that are made. We've got to start making shit again, not just there, but here and everywhere else, and not relying on, you know, container ships bringing us container after container of crap from abroad because nobody's going to buy it. They're only, you know, it's, going to, it's going to retrench us back in some respects to the 40s and 50s where we made our own stuff. We built our own stuff. We lived within our means. We did what we had to do. And that's going to be a big wake-up call for a lot of these companies and a lot of these people that are trying to foist the same back on us. And yeah, I look at people like Elon Musk, I spent last weekend watching the liftoff and the docking and, uh, you know, all that went into that. And I realized that that public-private partnership is going to be critical going forward. Neither side can run rampant over the other. You know, I, I lived in Miami in the early 80s. I was a founding member, founding board member of the Beacon Council. I represented Southeast Bank on that council for, you know, the seven or eight years that I was there. And I was impressed with the way in which the public sector and the private sector work. And you remember back to 83, 84, Miami Vice drug days, um, you know, race riots in, in Little Havana, between Little Havana and Little Haiti. Uh, just a horrible place to live unless you had a ton of money from drugs. Guns everywhere, still are guns, but not as bad. Miami Beach was the place where you pushed your grandma out in the morning so she could sit by and look at the beach, and they pulled her back in at night and put her to bed. I, those niche boutique hotels that you see now on the office towers and everything, none of that existed were it not for a group of people that sat around and said, there's no iron team. Um, you know, I can remember having meetings when Citicorp announced they were moving their consumer finance division to Hialeah, but they needed help in these areas. And we were able to bring quickly together 
the mayor of Miami, the mayor of Miami-Dade County, the mayor of Hialeah, all of the people that needed to be involved and got a decision made in 36 hours, which was all for the same reason. Rising tide lifts all boats, all rode together, because this was part of the longer-term plan. You know, that then made Miami the hub for American Airlines, for Latin America. Then they got the Heat franchise. Then we got the Marlins baseball franchise. All of those things were part of the plan. The regeneration of all of those hotels from nursing homes across Miami Beach, all part of a 30-year plan. And the 30 years have passed, and they've, they've more than exceeded expectations. Yes, problems? Of course, there's always problems. But it's a hell of a lot better place 30 years on than it was in the early 1980s. You know, the port turning that into a worldwide center of excellence. But that doesn't happen if everybody comes to the table saying, I'm going to get my piece and I want it now. This is the problem I run into across Wales. This is the problem I run into in so many places is that people pull up to the table and they say, okay, give me mine. This is my piece. I want this. We went so far with with meetings when we were in New York that by by that point I was with Pricewaterhouse, that if I was meeting with somebody, I had a person from Deloitte on my left and from Ernst & Winnie on my right because no one was allowed to have a competitive advantage over anybody else while they were there representing Miami. Now, that was an ethos and an ethic that has been challenged ever since. But in my way of thinking, it's still the only ethos that works. And I don't see many people willing to do that, um, you know, especially in the era of Trump, where everybody's got their hand you know, and how can I grift and get the most money I can in that particular situation? Well, thank you so much, Dennis. So glad you could join us. Have a good day and stay safe. And that was Dennis Campbell in conversation with Rick Spizak. And we'll have Janine Moloff here in a few minutes to talk about qualified immunity uh, which is the which is what makes police above the law. Um, you wonder why you wonder why they act with such impunity. It's not just because they're wearing all of the military hardware uh, and you know have the weaponry and all of the political muscle behind them. All of that makes is part of the mix. But the other part that is very important is a Supreme Court decision that granted police something that's called qualified immunity. And here in just a few minutes, we will have Janine Maloff to give us a little uh, more information on that. And until then,
And that's some of that wonderful test card music from the mid-20th century. But we've got Janine Mollis on the line joining us now. Hey, Janine. Hey, Brooke. I'm just going – I hope you're doing well. Um, I'm just going to get started, okay? Hop right in. Okay. The George Floyd murder by police is, the, as we know, the latest in a string of extrajudicial murders that has dominated the airwaves for the past few weeks. Unfortunately, rather than seriously deal with the issue of systemic police brutality aimed at communities of color, especially the black community, we see the corporate media focus on the looting and arson attacks committed by unidentified actors. Trump's being predictable, blaming Antifa while failing to comprehend that Antifa isn't a group, but a term meaning anti-fascist. Trump has conspired, in my opinion, to conflate Antifa, the idea, with the political left wing that has steadily opposed his racist policies. So while Trump and his attorney general, Bill Barr, slander the political left and communities of color, very few outlets are examining the how of this issue. How did police become above the law? What law or legal doctrine has allowed the police to brutalize anyone with virtual legal impunity? We know from Ferguson that prosecutors rarely file criminal charges against officers. The main avenue for accountability for victims of police brutality has historically been civil lawsuits, which are often dismissed by judges. Why? The reason is a longstanding doctrine created ironically by the SCOTUS or Supreme Court some time ago that has been routinely ignored again by the mainstream media. That doctrine, which I'm going to discuss today, is called the Qualified Immunity Doctrine. Now, we have here in the Justice Collaborative, their explainer series, a piece that was written by Amir H. Ali and Emily Clark in 2019 titled um, Qualified Immunity Explain, and it's what they call, their magazine's called The Appeal. To give you a little background, Amir H. Ali has served as uh, Supreme Court and Appellate Counsel at the MacArthur Justice Center, and Emily Clark has served as the Appellate Research Specialist at the MacArthur Justice Center. Their explainer series, or they, they take justice collaborative lawyers and a variety of other legal experts, and they take some of the most complicated issues in our criminal justice system, break it down, you know, past the headlines, they discuss in real time issues like bail, civil asset forfeiture, and the Brady Doctrine in a way that the average citizen can understand, can understand you know, everything minus all the jargon. And they try to take those stories and link it to what's happening now. And they talk about how these laws and principles should work and how often they fail. So the background example is first, I remember this case, it's the case of Malika Brooks and, um, this was a case where she was seven months pregnant and the Seattle police pulled her over for speeding and they gave her a ticket and this was in 2004 and they told her to sign it. Now Brooks unfortunately believed that she, well one thing, she thought she had been wrongfully pulled over, but she also thought that if she signed the ticket, that would be an admission of guilt. So she refused to sign the ticket. The officers then threatened to throw her into jail and she still refused to sign, so a sergeant <clears throat> excuse me, ordered her arrest. Now, this is an example, background example of qualified immunity, and this was reported in the New York Times in 2012, even though this incident happened in 2004. 
So the first police attempt of Malakia Brooks to coerce her was the threat, the threat of a taser. And she, they wanted her to step out of the car, and they held up a taser and asked her if she knew what it was. Well, she didn't. But she also informed the officer that she was seven months pregnant. So the officers basically conversed in front of her, just very casually trying to decide which part of her body they would tase. And some of the quotes are, well, don't do it, quote, well, don't do it in her stomach, one of them said, do it in her thigh, end quote. So the officers twisted her arm behind her back, tased her three separate times on her thigh, her arm, and then in the neck. Then they dragged her into the street, laying face down, and they cuffed her. Now, keep in mind, this, is, this woman was seven months pregnant at the time. Malikia Brooks sued the officers. Makes perfect sense. And she wanted to hold them accountable for their conduct. There were six federal judges that agreed that police use of severe force when no clear threat to their safety was present violated the U.S. Constitution. But they said they couldn't try her case because of, guess what, the Qualified Immunity Doctrine. And this was reported in the U.S. Court's government data store base. Uh, and those same justices then, these federal judges then, judges then dismissed her case because of qualified immunity. So now we're going to talk about what that is. Qualified immunity doctrine. This is a tool to help police evade any lawful accountability, including any constitutional violations. And the main reason why they become, technically speaking, legal predators with a badge. Now, the doctrine has been around for a while, and again, it allows police to avoid accountability for misconduct. Now, keep in mind, no other group of professionals or workers has such power to snuff out lives like the police do. Everyone else, whether you're a doctor, a teacher, a construction worker, a lawyer, you're expected to follow the law, and if you violate someone's rights, you can be sued and required to pay for any injuries. Well, the doctrine of qualified immunity lowered the bar concerning holding public officials accountable for their actions. And under this doctrine, public officials are held to a much lower standard. So the problem with qualified immunity, first there's the thing called the existing case law standard. Okay, and this is really a chokehold on the Bill of Rights. So here's the thing. Under qualified immunity, which is what police do receive, they police can be held accountable now they can be held accountable criminally but that rarely happens but in terms of civil lawsuits they can be held accountable but only only if they violate the rights according to the scotus that are quote clearly established in light of existing case law now that sounds pretty benign but it really isn't this i'm going to explain how the standard shields police from any meaningful civil accountability so Basically, and, and police are shielded from this type of accountability for many numerous constitutional violations. So in the Supreme Court's own words, documented by Justia.com, the standard basically, quote, protects, quote, all but the plainly incompetent or those who knowingly violate the law. So under this rule, officers can with pretty much immunity, drag someone who's non-threatening, seven months pregnant woman into the street, taser, knock her down onto the ground again, seven months pregnant, 
for the crime of refusing to sign a ticket. Now, qualified immunity is one of these things that, again, it lets the cops get away with this. How this affects police brutality and general predatory behavior by police, here's, we'll back up a little bit, okay? There's normally two ways the public can hold police accountable for any type of uh, illegality or brutality. As I said before, you either pursue criminal prosecution, which is rare, or more frequently and more accessible by civil lawsuit. Qualified immunity strips the public's right to meaningful civil lawsuits of police, even under the most egregious legal violations. And so nowadays we hear about police shooting after police shooting, and the cops get away with it. So how did qualified immunity come to be? What was its creation? Here's the ironic part. The creation of qualified immunity was actually a reaction to the Civil Rights Act of 1871, also known as the Ku Klux Klan Act. Now, the Civil Rights Act of 1871, a little after the Civil War, gave Americans the right to sue public officials who violate their legal rights. Section, and there's also a thing called Section 1983 of the U.S. Code. And Congress basically said that if a public official violates your rights, whether it's through illegal search, unlawful arrest, general police brutality, you can file a lawsuit to hold them account financially accountable for the, you know, the damages. The language that Congress used in the Civil Rights Act of 1871, according to the writers in this project, said was unequivocal. Here's, here's what they wrote into that bill. Quote, every state official who causes a deprivation of any rights guaranteed by the Constitution and laws shall be liable to the party injured, end quote. There's no mystery to that wording. It's pretty clear cut. So then how did qualified immunity develop from something that that is just that set in stone? Well, there was first the SCOTUS case, our Supreme Court case of Monroe v. Pape. And in this case, there was a black family, the Monroes. They sued Chicago police after the police broke into their home. The police did not have a warrant. They rounded the family up, made them stand naked in the living room. The police ransacked every room. They ripped mattress covers and pretty much destroyed the place. The Chicago PD then conducted an illegal arrest of James Monroe, the father. The officers took the father. They detained him, arrested him, detained him, and interrogated him for hours. This went all the way up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court opinion written by Justice William Douglas. Basically, they said they recognized that the Civil Rights Act allowed the Monroes to sue the Chicago Police Department and the officers for constitutional rights violations. And the court, the Supreme Court also explained that the purpose of the Civil Rights Act was, according to Justice Douglas, was, quote, to give a remedy to parties deprived of constitutional rights, privileges, and immunities by an official's abuse of his position. Again, very clear cut. There's no question here. But we're getting to qualified immunity now. How the Supreme Court then gutted the promise granted in the Civil Rights Act of 1871 by then creating qualified immunity and then expanding this unconstitutional right for public officials. So here's what happened. In 1967, after the Monroe case, the Supreme Court created qualified immunity. And they claimed that it was a, quote, modest exception, end quote, 
for public officials as they perform their duties in what they called, quote, good faith, which is very vague. They not only, the Supreme Court not only said that the qualified immunity was a modest, um, a modest change, a modest exception, the public officials had to, one, act in good faith, and the second part is those same public officials had to believe that their conduct was authorized by law. So that was the beginning of qualified immunity in 1967. Keep in mind, no tangible proof of this belief that you acted lawfully is actually, was actually required and the court didn't say anything about it. Then we fast forward 15 years later into 1982, and there was the Supreme Court case of Harlow v. Fitzgerald. And this is the case that drastically expanded qualified immunity to the, the monster we have now. <clears throat> and it was expanded as a defense for bad and unconstitutional behavior by public officials, including police. And guess who wrote the opinion? Justice Lewis Powell. Keep in mind, this is the same Justice Lewis Powell who crafted the infamous Powell Memo earlier on, which clearly outlined the plan to reduce rights for the average person. So Harlow v. Fitzgerald took this idea of qualified immunity further. So we, we first have this Civil Rights case, Civil Rights Act of 1871 that says, basically, you can sue uh, public officials for bad behavior. They violate your rights. No exceptions, nothing. Then we have basically the beginning of qualified immunity where it says, well, we're going to create a modest exception if these public officials, including police, one, acted in what we call good faith, whatever that is, and two, if they be express a belief that what they did was lawful. Again, very vague. Now, they took it further in Harlow in 1982. The protection of qualified immunity was expanded, so it didn't just depend on whether the official acted in good faith to get the immunity. Instead, the officials who violated people's rights with obvious malice would be immune to civil lawsuit unless the victim can directly show that their rights were what the Supreme Court called clearly established. So what's clearly established? What does that legal standard mean uh, to those whose constitutional human rights have been violated by a public official, especially in the context of today's heightened and egregious police brutality? Well, here's the thing. The ramifications of this change are really dire. In order to be clearly established, to show that the abuse, that the, the law they broke was clearly established, the victim must identify clearly a specific and previously decided case involving the identical specific context, particular conduct. And those are the two phrases the Supreme Court used, specific context and particular conduct. Otherwise, the public official, in this instance, the police officer, is automatically and fully shielded from any civil liability. And you have to wonder, that, what does that mean? That means that if you are abused by a public official or by police and you feel your rights have been violated, you, have, you or your lawyers have to be able to point to a specific case in precedent that duplicates the context of the alleged violation and the conduct of those officers. And if you can't find an identical case that has already been decided before that, that is precedent, you don't have a chance. Now, the Supreme Court did recognize one exception in Hope v. Peltzer, 
and basically this was an instance where corrections officers disciplined a prisoner and they abused the prisoner so badly that the Supreme Court said the officer's cruelty was obvious but again and, and they said that the only thing that would have to happen is that the officer should have quote what they call fair warning end quote that their conduct violated constitutional protections against cruel and unusual punishment like in Gitmo so for instance if somebody who was an American citizen was sent to Gitmo and lawful and, and issued a civil lawsuit against those guards under qualified immunity even under this one minor exception they would have to also say that the officers received a fair warning that you know electrifying someone's genitals for instance uh, fair warning that that might be cruel and unusual punishment if this sounds absurd to you it's because it is absurd so but what's happening now is all the police brutality we're stuck with this this injustice that's engineered by the supreme court of the reagan administration so this is the law today so if a police officer knowingly violates someone's constitutional rights even maliciously so unless that victim as i said before can identify previous judicial decisions that have been settled that are considered settled case law to address that specific context of the incident and the conduct of the officer then you don't have any sort of civil recourse in fact what will happen is the, the courts will often say well yes your rights were clearly violated this is truly unconstitutional but because of qualified immunity we can't touch that officer so examples of how qualified immunity made profound constitutional violations just disappear in april 2013 police officers in texas they received a dispatch and they responded and it was uh, concerning a black man in a brown shirt who was allegedly firing his gun in mailboxes in a neighborhood. The officers arrived on the scene. The man fired his gun in their direction, then hid. So the officers set up a defensive perimeter behind some vehicles. A few minutes later, the officers saw the man whose name was Gabriel Windsor. He was a mentally impaired 25-year-old riding a bicycle. He was wearing a blue shirt, but he was carrying a toy gun in his belt. So neighbors saw a black man with a toy gun, and they just, they, their imaginations went wild. Within six seconds of spotting this mentally impaired young man, the officer shot Winsier 17 times. Then they chased him, they tased him, and he died at the scene. The officers later claimed that they shot Windsor because they, they, they had reasonable belief to fear for their lives. Does this sound familiar? The federal appeals court concluded that police violated Windsor's constitutional rights, but the appeals court could do nothing because of, guess what, the qualified immunity doctrine, and there, there was nothing they could do. And the federal court's actual statement, the court only gave one sentence of analysis, and here it is in this case. Quote, we cannot conclude that Gabriel's right to be free from excessive force was clearly established here, end quote. That's it. That's all they had to say about a man who was posed no real threat, who was murdered by police. So now we have to talk about why qualified immunity, obviously, it, qualified immunity doctrine has to go. And it hinders civil rights in some other various ways. First, qualified immunity, according to the writers of this 
um, this article. It, in practical terms, means that if you're a victim of police brutality or harassment, you will get no release civilly in court. You will have no ability to hold the officers accountable. The officers who commit such brutality, harassment, and even extrajudicial murders, unless they're criminally prosecuted, which is rare, governments that keep them in their employment don't have any incentive to improve practices or obey the law. And that's it. Qualified immunity also reduces a person's chance for even a win in a civil rights lawsuit if you get that far. Many claims will never be brought to court, and the reason being is that in 1976, there was a civil rights law passed, and Congress tried to create an incentive for attorneys to represent uh, victims that otherwise couldn't afford attorneys in civil rights actions, and basically Congress guaranteed that lawyers that represented these victims in these civil rights lawsuits would be able to recover the cost of their time, and so it made legal action possible. Here's the problem with qualified immunity. When a case is dismissed, the victim loses and the attorneys aren't able to be paid. So the Supreme Court's aggressive defense of qualified immunity has made it so that victims of police brutality or police murders have a hard time even getting an attorney. Number three, qualified immunity as a doctrine essentially freezes constitutional law according to these authors. And it does so because a victim has to once again show that law enforcement violated clearly established law. They have to point to a, an individual case that is absolutely identical in terms of the context and the conduct of the officer. And that gives courts a shortcut to basically not deal with it. Instead of, as these authors say, instead of reviewing, analyzing, and applying constitutional doctrine to determine whether your rights have been violated, Court can basically say there's been nothing, no cases sufficiently similar in the past, and so those constitutional rights, the courts uh, rarely resolve these constitutional issues, and the constitutional rights are then hardly ever, quote, considered clearly established. Now, more unethical results from the qualified immune, immunity doctrine. Um, there's some more outrageous results. Okay, in March 2019, the U.S. Court of Appeals from Ninth Circuit held officers were immune from liability. Uh, these officers actually stole property. And because there was no clearly established case law, they were basically allowed to get away with it. Police officers had executed a search warrant. They seized about $275,000 worth in property and $150,000 in cash and another $125,000 in rare coins but they stated that they only seized 50,000 worth. So the officers attempted to steal $225,000 of goods and money while on the job. The Ninth Circuit dismissed the lawsuit against the officers involved, citing qualified immunity. So this basically gave them a, a license to steal. There's, <clears throat> and uh, it goes on, Fifth Circuit Judge Don Willett described this phenomenon. He said the victims of abuse quote, must produce precedent, even if fewer courts are producing precedent. Important constitutional questions go unanswered precisely because those questions are yet unanswered. Courts then rely on that judicial silence to conclude there's no equivalent case in the books. No precedent equals no clearly established law equals no liability. That's it. 
NYU Law Review reported a study where, again, the Supreme Court listed some really absurd uh, defense of qualified immunity. And the most ludicrous of all was that law enforcement officers uh, would be less apt to do their jobs effectively. And again, study after study has shown that that is not the case. The authors of this piece have uh, accused the idea of qualified immunity as judicial policy making. The Supreme Court responded saying that, and wrongfully claimed that qualified immunity is rooted in history. But even if that were true, does that make a doctrine legally right? Um, the flaw in the reasoning, Professor Joanna Schwartz basically said, several quote, several scholars have shown that history does not support the court's claims about qualified immunity's common law foundations. Now, the, recently the court has talked about uh, questioning this doctrine's legitimacy, but once again, it has not happened as of yet. And again, uh, Lee and Clark have done a beautiful job analyzing this. So in conclusion, police brutality in the USA has reached epidemic proportions. Not since the age of the robber barons has such open police criminality been witnessed by the world. While the GOP focuses on looting and arson committed by unknown persons or groups, this vile doctrine is largely omitted from the discussion. In my opinion, it is no small coincidence that qualified immunity was created as a response to the civil rights law designated to protect blacks from racist groups such as the Ku Klux Klan. It is also no small coincidence that the initial creation of qualified immunity for public officials, especially police, came during the 1968 presidential election cycle where Richard Nixon painted the black community as dangerous predators plotting to attack whites. This is the Southern strategy as it morphed into the judicial branch. It was authored by Justice Lewis Powell, who also authored the infamous Powell Memo, which served as a map for attacking any expansion of legal, political, and fiscal rights to the general population. It is also no small coincidence that the subsequent egregious expansion of qualified immunity came again during the Reagan administration, rendering any civil lawsuit against police utterly untenable. Historically, corporate power and the billionaire class rely on the police to enforce their dictates. This was so during the rise of unions and the reliance on the savage Pinkertons by the robber barons breaking skulls of anyone who dared to fight for a living wage and human dignity. And it is true now. Police unions argue to retain qualified immunity so they can serve their corporate masters. The fact that police are permitted, permitted to hunt black men with legal impunity is viewed by far too many officers as the perk of the job. Americans must face this simple, inconvenient truth, namely that racism, criminal police brutality, and corporate government rule are codependently intertwined. There is no mistake here. The creation of qualified immunity, in my opinion, is part of the plan to maintain power for the billionaire class and their police enablers. Or as Judge Sotomayor claimed recently, the qualified immunity doctrine sanctioned a, quote, shoot first, think later approach to policing. Again, there's no mistake here. None whatsoever, and when people think they can sue the police department, they do so not understanding that they, they've been stripped of their rights. Um, so once again, this is my report, and we need to do something about this doctrine. It needs to be either struck down or Congress needs to write a law that basically um, nullifies qualified immunity that states that every person has a right to hold public officials accountable. 
Well, <clears throat> I really love this segment that you did because it gives us something very concrete to ask for. This is a fantastic uh, uh, demand. It's very specific, and it would go straight to the heart of a lot of the uh, trouble that, that a lot, not, not all of it. You know, I, I, I wonder, right. um, it, are there any cases where there had been a uh, precedent where people were able to find that specific precedent so that they could fight uh, back it, against qualified immunity? You know, that, that's a really good question. I don't know for a fact. I mean, this this site called The Appeal, Amir Ali and Emily Clark did such beautiful work. Everything that I did was from their article. They explained it so well. Um, and I, you know, and the MacArthur Justice Center needs to be credited. They are phenomenal. Uh, I really don't know. I suspect that really what happens is that when somebody attempts to uh, push a civil lawsuit, it never gets decided because the judge automatically says, well, yeah, your rights were violated, but it's qualified immunity. So you would have to, they would have to go in with that specific case, and it's almost impossible to find. And, and you have to realize, if there's, it's like the one guy said, if there's no precedent, then there's no case law. If there's no case law, there's no lawsuit. Well, send me that link, and I'll put that up in the show notes so that people can follow up and check out that, that article. And once again, what an amazing segment. Thank you so much, Janine. Um, I, you know, every week I am, I always look forward to this segment because I feel like uh, I learn a lot and I'm, and I'm sure that everybody else uh, does too. Um, thank you so thank much. You. And we will talk again next week. <clears throat> okay, guys, that's it for this week. Um, you know, Get out there and protest if you are so inclined. Wear a mask. Uh, be very safe with uh, your social distancing in terms of not getting in people's faces. That's going to protect you, so on and so forth. And also be safe with regard to the police. Um, I appreciate you guys tuning in every week. And, you know, we will do this again next week, 7 p.m., uh, blog talk radio and until then um, just stay safe and uh, continue being awesome all righty I'm going to leave you with uh, what am I going to leave you with I'm going to leave you with pleasure drive mm-hmm.